The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Hi, I'm your host, Catherine Zox. I am your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is author Amy Donin. Amy co-authored the book Beat the Heart Attack Gene with Bradley Bale, MD. Amy is uh, a nurse. She's an RN, and uh, as I understand it, as I was talking to her before the show, she is getting her doctorate in nursing. Uh, Amy is also the Director of the Heart Attack and Stroke Prevention Center in Spokane, Washington. She is adjunct professor at Texas Tech Health Center or Health Science Center School of Nursing. And as I said, is currently getting her doctoral nurse in the doctoral nursing program at Gonzaga University. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Amy. Thank you so much, Catherine. Thank Great to have you here. Well, as I understand it, is February <clears throat> Heart Healthy Month or how do they describe it? Well, February is dedicated um, to Women's Heart Health Month, and it's great because, you know, Women's Heart Health Month, 10 times more women die of heart disease than uh, breast cancer, and breast cancer is a very, very important campaign, but they've had a 40-year head start on us, um, and so we have a lot of education to do and a lot of um, public awareness campaigns to be aware of, so dedicating February to women and heart disease is really truly remarkable. And so using this month as a platform to launch our book is, is really terrific for us. And, and our book, Beat the Heart Attack Gene, really focuses on um, the root causes of vascular disease and, and how to provide the public with the tools they need to find out what those root causes are. What are the genetics behind um, heart disease? what causes plaque in the arteries, and how do you ask for the right test to find out if you indeed are at risk for heart disease? Well, your book points out a a lot of, I guess, risk factors, information about heart disease, both for men and women. I thought I was an expert, but I guess I'm not after reading (laughs) your book. (laughs) And I will admit to that. But I do want to go back to the first thing you said, because you said heart disease or heart is kills 10 times more women than cancer but, but women were ter- I know I am we're ter- they have I'm at the point, I'm terrified of cancer I'm not terrified of heart disease and I do have a history of heart disease in my family but still it's that cancer breast cancer thing that's looming over us so I'm always wanting to find out more information about that so your book is not only important and it's timely um it, it, it particularly important for women cuz I think we kind of put ourselves off the radar. Uh, there's a lot of denial. You know, I'm a woman, so I don't really have to worry about heart disease. And, you know, that's not true. So let's, how, what, how do we want to start this? Because we, we don't necessarily want to specifically focus on women because this book is for both men and women. Right. But, yeah. 
Well, so, I, I think it's a good platform to, to start, and, and that is, one, to increase awareness, one, that the statistics are there. Um, not only does heart disease affect women every day, um, not only does it claim lives every day of, of aunts and mothers and sisters and grandmothers um, every day, but the, the problem is there's a, there is a still, and it, some people think this can't be the truth, but it really is, there is a lack of awareness um, that heart disease does affect women, <clears throat> and that's a huge problem. And the other issue, when we talk vascular disease, we're also talking about ischemic stroke risk as well, and actually more women die of stroke than men every year. And when we talk about plaque in the artery wall, we're talking about both disease states, um, stroke and heart attack. And so to focus on atherosclerosis or plaque in the artery wall um, that can cause either a heart attack or stroke, understanding that we as women are at risk for that disease, um, just bringing that to the forefront and talking about that really sets us up for some action steps that I think are important. Um, All right, let's talk about some of the action steps because I know you talk about red flags. I mean, that there are signals, that there are things that if we're aware that it's a possibility that we may have a stroke or a heart attack, then we have to know what the red flags are. What What are the signals that show that we, as women, have an increased risk for a heart attack or a stroke, as you've yeah, described it. great, great. Thank you for bringing that up. Red flags are, are issues that um, don't necessarily have a direct cause and effect, but have a direct association with the development of plaque in our arteries or development of heart disease. Um, so some red flags that are unique to women are things like a history of migraine with aura, um, things like hypertension during pregnancy or preeclampsia, preterm birth, gestational diabetes, polycystic ovarian syndrome, metabolic changes, increasing waistlines. Yes, going through menopause can increase our risk because as we lose the protective qualities of our own estrogen and our and those stores start to fall, our good cholesterol also can start to fall. So our risk starts to escalate as we get older. So all of those factors, which are very unique for women, are often not discussed. And the other issue is women tend to present later to the emergency departments, even if they're having symptoms. And ironically, women are very aware of symptoms of heart attack or stroke. Like in all, a lot of studies that look at meta-analyses asking women and men, what are the symptoms of stroke? What are the symptoms of heart disease? Women are very aware of those. They understand that the symptoms of stroke. Um, They understand some of the symptoms of heart disease. And yet they're still later to the present uh, to the emergency departments, understanding what those barriers to access to care are 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 really important issues. Is it that women are not putting themselves first to get in for care? Is it that women are not finding ways to get to the emergency department? And as discussed in the book, there are even tragic situations happening right now where women go in with symptoms, which, you know, interestingly, Catherine, our symptoms can even be so different than men. Well, let's women, name the different symptoms. And as you say in the book, you give a description of like right. the tragic things that can happen when these symptoms aren't recognized. So right. the symptoms <laughs> by, right. by everyone. So right. what happened? Yeah, give one, us an example. One case, one of the things we do in the book, and I encourage everybody to read the book, because in the book we tell about these, you know, scientific concepts are illustrated through real tangible case studies. So 
real situations. So as you read this, it, it makes sense because you're reading it through a real story. So um, as an example, there's a, a woman that I have the honor and privilege to see um, as a patient, and she, at the age of 37, presented to the emergency room with shortness of breath, and they quickly diagnosed her with uh, pneumonia, and she thought, well, I don't even have a cough. And, and the reality is um, they said, well, you must have pneumonia. You're 37 years old. You're a non-smoker. You're a mother of a toddler. You, you, it must be a cough or a cold or pneumonia or something sent her home. took her three times trying to access care before they properly diagnosed her with a heart attack. And not only one, but she had had two heart attacks. So even even in um, the system we have right now, and that's not a pointed finger at an individual clinician, it's a system, women are often under-recognized that they can have these events. Um, well, what if so, we are to take control over our own destinies and our own... That's what our passion is, is that okay. we so as given the exa- But I want to comment because I think that's really a critical example that you gave. So what right. if you do walk into an emergency room and you have shortness of breath and they say you know, all the things that you said, you're 38 years old, you, you know, this is, you probably have pneumonia. What does the consumer, what do we do? Because there must be other signs besides the shortness of breath. Do we say, well, perhaps... You know, there are other symptoms that you need to take a look at. Maybe I am having a heart attack. Right. The top three symptoms for women presenting to the ER, shortness of breath, unexplained fatigue, and anxiety. And shortly following that would be um, nausea and then pain, arm pain, chest pain, jaw pain, etc. So if a female walks into the emergency room and she feels differently than she ever has before, I would put heart heart attacks or even strokes up on the radar and demand to be cleared of that before you're dismissed from the emergency department. Knowing that heart attacks occur in women at an alarming rate, knowing that strokes are occurring at an alarming rate, do not leave without being cleared and checked out. Our male counterparts are often checked out um, and cleared and then dismissed, but women still, it's getting better. It is getting a lot better, Um, but we need to be our best advocates. We need to be our best advocates. And the other issue in the book that I think are talked about, if you have any of those red flags that we mentioned and you are a female, if you have had preeclampsia during a pregnancy, if you have had gestational um, sugar changes during pregnancy, if you have had blood pressure changes during pregnancy, if you have polycystic ovarian syndrome, if you have migraine with aura, get checked out for vascular risk. It, the, the association is there. The other things that are more global that we would call red flags and even root causes are things like periodontal disease, prediabetes, insulin resistance, those fall into root causes. If you have any of those issues, you need to realize that those cause systemic inflammatory changes to the vascular system that place you at increased risk for the development of vascular disease. Well, doesn't somebody electronically, including us, we as the consumer, uh, emergency rooms and primary care physicians and cardiologists, don't they need that checklist? Can't they go to their iPhone or their iPad or whatever the information is and just go right down that checklist? Is it that difficult? It would seem to me now with all this electronic information, we everybody should have that on their checklist kind of automatically. I mean, you said that the system is getting better, but better really isn't good enough considering the tools that we have at hand to do just what you're saying. 
Right. Well, I, I love the way you think, and, and that's how we think as well. Um, yes, we want this in, in everyone's uh, forefront and everyone's hands. The challenge is the current system as it's set up right now in the standard of care is a risk factor mod- module. So even the new guidelines, which were published at the very end of 2013, still look at the following situations. They look at our age, our gender, our smoking status, our cholesterol and our blood pressure. That's it. They, they calculate those. They, they do a calculation, and then they determine our risk percent of having a heart attack or stroke over a 10-year time period. We're either offered treatment for cholesterol management or we're withheld treatment for cholesterol management. So much of the attention is on cholesterol, and the reality is, Catherine, that cholesterol is important. It is important, but it's one piece of a much more global issue. It, the psychosocial issues matter. You're a social worker. You realize in the Inner Heart trial when they looked at 33,000 people in 52 different countries and they said, hey, what causes heart disease? What causes acute coronary death events? And they looked at all of those people and they looked at the top factors. They were able to determine nine factors that cause 90% of all acute coronary events. Number one was cholesterol, all the bad divided by all the good. Number two was smoking, but number three was psychosocial factors. So how naive can we be if we think all we do is if we treat cholesterol, we think we've solved this problem. We've got to address psychosocial, sleep issues, anxiety, depression, periodontal disease, um, all of those issues matter. And what this book does, our aim of this book is to get to the public. Our, our goal is to not have it sit on a shelf somewhere and gather dust. Our, our goal, and at the end of every chapter, we have action steps. And that is, if you have a family history of this, if you have symptoms of this, these are the tests that you need to ask for. Um, and and, and I was ha- fascinated by those tests because, uh, I, yeah, I mean, I have a history of heart disease in my family, and I have done some of these ultrasound tests. I'd like you to address that because you're right. The things that, well, you have high cholesterol. Okay, here are your statins. Uh, right, and They right. send you home. And uh, they don't, it, it, uh, they don't, most, they, I say, the medical profession, unfortunately, does not focus on the psychosocial issues because they they have less control over those. That's that, that's right, what I think. Point. You can't give you a pill for a pill for that. Yeah, um, so that's an issue, and I think that's why one of the reasons why it's not addressed. But I don't think that the women, in particular, because that's what we're talking about, I don't think women realize that these ultrasound tests are available, which can help lend itself to predicting whether or not you're a candidate for a heart attack. Um, and ultrasound is, is, is relatively, or is it, it's, there are no side effects necessarily. It's not radiation. No, um, right, right. Yeah. Is it because they're so, exp- well, I'm asking you too many questions at once. Let's talk about these tests that can help predict whether or not you are a candidate for a heart attack. Yeah, okay. So, so first and foremost, ultrasound testing is available nationwide. It's easy to access. You're right, there's no exposure to radiation. Um, there's two types of ultrasound tests. One that looks at the opening or the hole where blood flows. That's called the lumen, and that's called the duplex scan. That looks for any blockages. Um, and, and that's a good test if you're concerned that you have a blockage of an artery. The test that we talk about in the book, though, is a little bit different, and that's called a carotid 
Intima Media Thickness Test, C-I-M-T test. And that, interestingly enough, takes the ultrasound beam and shoots it in a different direction and looks at the wall of the artery. Because, Catherine, the plaque grows in the wall of the artery. That's why we don't feel it. We don't feel silent plaque growing in the wall of the artery until it ruptures. And what causes that rupture is some sort of inflammatory condition um, or inflammatory event. Once the plaque ruptures, our body's natural response to that is to heal that rupture with a clot. And if that clot lands in the heart, in one of the arteries in the heart, we call it a heart attack. If the clot lands in the brain, blocks an artery in the brain, we call it a stroke. So what we talk about in the book is finding access to an IMT test to look at the wall of the artery to see if there's plaque hiding Silently in the artery wall. If there's Amy, plaque, does that does insurance cover this, or is this a reason? Yes, and sometimes no. But here's the reality: we're talking about uh, around a hundred and fifty dollar test. So it's not a lot when you consider the idea that a heart attack with hospitalization and follow up care is about five hundred thousand dollars. So if we put it in perspective, um, if it's a screening test, um, insurance doesn't always cover screening tests. So. I think people should consider, you know, investing that amount of money in, in trying to find access to this test. It's becoming more and more um, available. It's been around and backed by the American Heart Association since 2001. So we're now 13 years into this being backed by the American Heart Association saying, here, clinicians, here's a tool. It's reliable. It's reproducible. It's cost-effective. Um, it's valid. Here you go, use it. And we're still talking about it and having it gain traction. We know that if we find plaque in the arteries, it's predictive of both heart attack and stroke. So we're really advocating for everybody to get this test. We know what normals are, by the way, thicknesses down to adolescence all the way up to age 80. So we, since there's no exposure to radiation, we can say, gosh, let's find out if your lifestyle, if your stress management, if your um, cholesterol, if, if your life is causing plaque growth in the artery wall. It's, it's the first step to find out if there's issues. There's other tests we, we talk about. I want about. you, the, one of the tests, I mean, that's a great example of the, of this specific kind of, uh, test, the ultrasound kind of test or ultrasound scan, but, what about, you refer also to the fire panel of blood and urine tests. Now, that's just right. blood and urine. So, if you, yeah. you know, I always say I can, you can have as much blood or urine as you want. <laughs> right. Um, that's, I'm not at risk for that. So Yeah, why, right. Yeah. So, that's great. So, we also um, measure inflammation because inflammation is really um, not only the cause of, of silent plaque growth in the artery wall, but the cause of um, plaque rupture and um, subsequent thrombus or, or, you know, heart attack, basically. So we look for, and it's very simple, we look for tests um, and their blood and urine tests that, and you do not have to be fasting for these, that look for inflammation in the artery wall. So for patients who've had a heart attack, who I see for the first time and they've been on treatment, um, maybe they've had recidivistic events. They've had repeat events, and I see them for the first time, and I want to know, my gosh, is your treatment really working? I can measure the inflammation in the artery wall, and it's very clear to say, gosh, I know that your cholesterol looks good. That's being treated. 
Um, but clearly you've got some residual inflammation here that's not being addressed. Let's find out why. What's not being treated? Maybe it's obstructive sleep apnea. Maybe there's some periodontal disease. Maybe there's some other issues, some genetic factors that are not being addressed properly that we need to move forward on. So that was my measuring- next question: decoding your DNA. Because mm-hmm. what, what you know, so I, there, a lot of us will say, "Well, I have a really bad history of heart disease in my family, my parents, my grandparents. What can I really do about it? Should I find? Do I want to decode my DNA, or is mm-hmm. it going to scare me so much I'm not going to be able to enjoy what little time I have left? <laughs> so, uh, you know, because but it is important, and because you, it- say, uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, it's really important. So um, the the value of genetics are twofold. One, we can really get to the individual, unique, wonderful patient. So in in medicine, oftentimes we're all we are all treated as if we're all the same. So we are given a medication, and we are assumed that we're all going to respond the same, which is clearly not the not the not the what happens. Um, so genetics allow us to fine tune treatment based on our genetic response to that. So that's called pharmacogenetics. So we can even make a choice of a medication based on the genetic studies that have been done to know how someone's going to respond to that medication. That's number one. Number two, when you look at genetics, you can be very, very clear on um, someone's path towards towards a certain disease state. So, for example, if we're picking screening techniques such as aneurysm risk or so forth, if you are positive for a gene that says you have an increased lifetime risk of aneurysms, we are going to screen you more frequently for aneurysms so that you never have one because there are certainly things to do to prevent aneurysm risk. And what happens in individuals who don't know that is aneurysms are silent until they create death. And so what we can do is make proper decisions clinically to avoid those issues if we know you are genetically positive. Going back to women and breast cancer, if you know you carry a breast cancer gene, are you going to wait till you're 50 to get your first mammogram? No. You're going to get that earlier and more frequently. If you know you carry the gene for heart attack and stroke, are you going to wait to get evaluated for silent plaque in the artery wall? No. You're going to knock on the door and say, hey, test this for me. I want to know if I'm okay or not. And you're going to do the steps. The other thing with genetics that people don't think about is lifestyle. We guide lifestyle advice based on genetics. There's a gene called the APOE gene. And this is fascinating. So we are all told by the World Health Organization and others, we probably should have one glass of alcohol per day, just as an example, unless you have a um, history of cancer and you're female, that may not be a good you know, good piece of advice. But from a cardiac standpoint, that's kind of the general rule. But if you carry a gene called an APOE4, we would not offer that advice because alcohol has a different effect on our lipid metabolism. So it does not help our cholesterol. Um, if you happen to carry an APOE2 gene, that is good advice. And we would recommend having a glass of alcohol every day or, or drink of alcohol every day. That's probably good advice. Same thing with fats, carbohydrates, and proteins. Are we going to recommend a high-fat diet, a low-fat diet, a high-carbohydrate, low-carbohydrate, etc. How are we going to get an anticipated response to exercise? Some people have high cholesterol despite a wonderful exercise program 
their weight is in check, they can't shed any more weight, they eat right, and yet their cholesterol is still a real problem. They probably are genetically predisposed to that, and so them understand, if an individual understands that, they know that exercise has other benefits and lifestyle has other benefits, but it won't change their lipid profile, and they may need medication despite doing everything they need to do with their lifestyle. So having a genetic background to know how to make clinical decisions is just so valuable. So it's Amy, not as a you're saying, one size, I want, to, I want to interrupt you because I think it's important to reiterate this, mm-hmm. one size all treatment for medicine it really does, is just it, it, that generic kind of response to, 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 to treatment um, is kind of antiquated or is antiquated. So we do need, I've, you know, I've heard the word designer. I don't know if that's a good term, but we need very specific kinds of treatment for different genders, for different genetic, as you say, the genetic code. We haven't done that yet. I mean, uh, it seems to me we're not doing it. Hopefully we are kind of drift, we are segueing into that. But so one size fits all in terms of treatment is not what we're looking for, and particularly in the, what we're talking about in cardiovascular disease. Right. But right. how do we be, now, you know, we have a few minutes left, and everything that you say is so, you know, apropos, I think, to the kind of treatment that we need in your book as well. But how do we prevent ourselves from becoming like chronic patients? I mean, I want to, my thought is always, well, I want to enjoy the life I'm living right now, and I do feel good, and I'm, mm-hmm. um, if I, attend to all of this in every area, whether it's cancer or heart disease or diabetes, I could spend my whole life just getting tests, going to doctors, <laughs> concerning myself, and I'm not enjoying the time I have. You know, it has right. to be, yeah, so what do we do right. about Good that? Because that has to do with attitude and fear and yeah. denial. Yeah, no, I appreciate you saying that, Catherine. That's a really good point. I mean, Knowledge is power, right? So let's find out our risk. Let's, let's find out objectively what we have in front of us as far as our cardiovascular risk because it remains. Cardiovascular death remains the number one cause of death and cardiovascular disability remains the number one cause of dis- disability in this country. So if we know that that's our number one risk factor for claiming our independence, we all work so hard, we want to retire one day and travel the world and do these things, if we know this is the one disease state that's going to claim that from us, then why not find out our risk so we don't become chronic patients? Wouldn't that be great? So um, my thought is, yeah, I agree with you. I mean, let's let's get the knowledge. Let's find out where we stand objectively. Let's let's pay it forward. Let's let's do what we need to now. Um, if we've you know, for patients who've not had events not had stents, not had strokes, not had heart attacks, find out now what your risk is so you don't become a chronic patient. For those individuals that are, unfortunately, chronic patients, have recidivistic events, are back in for another stent every five years, find out why that revolving door exists and stop that process so you are not a chronic patient. This disease can be halted, but knowledge is the only way to do that. And once you have the knowledge, you are less fearful. Yes, and I think if you, yeah, because as you say, knowledge is power. It also kind of dissipates the fears because then you have some realistic information in front of you. And um, I think that's really important. And obviously your book, Beat the Heart Attack Gene, Amy 
Donine. She, and I have to say, I'm very impressed with this because you're getting your PhD in nursing, co-authored the book with Bradley Bale, MD, and she is the medical director of the Heart Attack and Stroke Prevention Center in Spokane, Washington. Um, Amy, what website would you direct us to? I mean, your website, I would think, obviously. Right, yeah. right. So our website is um, Um That's B-A-L-E, Donine, D-O-N-E-E-N.com. And we also have a website for the book just called BeatTheHeartAttackGene.com. And we welcome everyone to visit the website. And um, we have clinicians all around the country now that are practicing the bail donine method and clinicians who have come to our courses. And what used to, our goal is that this is not unique anymore. We want to get the information out there, and we're very accessible. And um, I'm sure... I'm honored to be on your show, Catherine. I appreciate your questions, and I really do appreciate your interest. Great. Well, it was fantastic, and obviously now I have information, so I have more power after talking to you and reading your book. Amy, thanks so much. <laughs> Thank you. Amy need yeah. We're going to say goodbye, and but okay. don't go away because we'll be back. I'm Catherine Zox, your host. I'm your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, we'll be back in a minute. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash World Talk Radio or search for the keywords World Talk Radio. Once you're a part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the World Talk Radio network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash World Talk Radio or search for World Talk Radio. Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network host? How about what's new with our network? Make sure you check out the iRadio blog, a look at what's hot at Voice America and beyond. Visit www.iradioblog.com today. Get the inside scoop on every channel on our network, including breaking news, featured guests, blog posts from our hosts, and much more. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter for even more inside action. Visit iradioblog.com today and stay connected. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. I'm your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to your social worker with the microphone on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Arlene Schindler. She's the author of The Last Place She'd Look. The Last Place She'd Look is described as an uproarious novel about a self-help writer who anxiously faces a milestone birthday, and we all know what that is, ladies, or we think we do, by compulsively searching for a serious relationship. Meanwhile, friends urge her to stop looking for love and just enjoy herself. Well, Arlene was born in Brooklyn, New York, originated the comedy review column for the New York Post. She was a relationship expert, guest guru for America Online's Love Online. So I guess she, Arlene, welcome to the show. You are a love expert. Should I describe you as that? 
there are many people that would disagree with you, but <laughs> okay. uh, um, I would say that I'm a dating expert and that from uh, personal experience and from experience of my friends, I've learned that Internet dating is like catalog, shop, uh, catalog shoe shopping for a relationship. <laughs> Almost as if you see page after page of people who want you to try them on. But Arlene, people are doing this. Isn't uh, online dating, isn't that it? Isn't that the trend? I mean, how many people do it other ways? I mean, so here we have this online dating. I don't want to get just into online. I want to get into your book, but um, that's what we do, isn't it? I mean, I know that's my, yeah. And it it has um, a lot of joys. Uh, many people, many people find relationships that way. Many, pe- many people get married, have long-term relationships, and things go very well. But as the expression goes, what is it? You have to kiss a lot of frogs before you find your prince or princess. That's it. Uh, a lot nice. of things happen, and I think especially for uh, older women, there are additional challenges within online dating. Um, I always hear of scenarios where um, women find men or men find women and shortly into the uh, dating process, they find themselves asking for money or, or help with things of a financial nature. So that's some, you know, That's a whole other thing, though. Yeah, that's one of the pitfalls of of that kind of dating. But the last place she'd look, I mean, it's been described, your book has been described, I think it was uh, the Huffington Post or an interview that someone did with you, searching for a steamy summer beach read, uh, then check out Arlene Schindler's The Last Place She'd Look. Okay, why is it, why is The Last Place She'd Look a, what's steamy about it? Well, um... The characters have uh, sex or sexual encounters in uh, a lot of public places in Los Angeles, like uh, the uh, bathroom of a movie theater. And um, also you take the kind of women who uh, basically people think that many people under 50 think that women over 50 are not interesting, are uh, invisible, are over. Or are not interested in sex. Yes, exactly. And in this book, everybody's interested in sex. And they have um, exciting experiences. They have laughable experiences. They have disastrous experiences. But it's very... uh, it's it's very engaging and it's very funny. So and you're very fun. I mean, that's you. You are the comedian, and I, as I understand it, you're the protagonist in the book. You the book is written um, in the first. No, no. I mean it's a okay. novel. Yeah. So there are certain aspects from my life and also the as um, from uh, some of my friends' lives. So it isn't Sarah is the main character. Uh, Sarah is the protagonist it's not you but it is you kind of and your friends and experiences okay so take us through i mean it's a sexy book it's about sexy relationships um i but before we get i want to i want to kind of stick to the topic about you know that women of a certain age are considered kind of sexless not interested in sex uh it's so the opposite 
Uh, or I think it is anyway. I mean, once you get to be over 50 or postmenopausal uh, women uh, don't have sex or they're interested in companions if they want to be with somebody. Why do you think that is? Well, I think that people um, kind of see older people as in some ways being less than, but in many ways they're really more than. Uh, I, I wrote a piece for Huffington Post that was about why men aren't interested in women over 50, and it uh, got a lot of comments. And um, basically it's that uh, if women are confident with an assured sexual ease, they somehow seem invisible, ignored, and undesirable. And, uh, you know, one of the things that everybody says um, is, should we ask George Clooney? Because, you know, here, here, here is a man who is um, in midlife and uh, highly visible and can really be with any woman he wants and is known to be uh, intelligent and cerebral, and yet he picks um, women who are much, much younger. And I, I, one of the things that I am trying to do is to uh, boost awareness about the fabulousness of women over 50. Okay, how do you do that in the book? Because it's not just George, I mean, Elliot Spitzer, it's funny, I just had this conversation. I mean, if you think about all these, many of these high-powered men, successful men, they don't want women in their 50s, they want women in their 30s. Howard Stern, they want women in their 20s, 30s, or even 40s, but certainly not 50s. So how do you dispel all of those myths that women are not viable sex partners in your book, in your novel? Well, it's, it's interesting to me because men enjoy this book more than women. And um, they're all surprised and they, they experience it as an, as an awakening because they just never saw women in this light. And I think that, that for many women, uh, menopause creates a sexual freedom because you can't get pregnant and you don't have to think about any of the any of the things that relate to uh, pregnancy. So uh, many of the women just become very uninhibited, but it's kind of um, an unspoken secret that I've been talking about a lot. And I also think, Arlene, to add to that, yes, you don't have to worry about getting pregnant. Uh, I think one becomes maybe less concerned about your body in the way that it has to be perfect because it can't be, but, and, and you do, and uh, I think one of your interviews, you say that women get bolder and braver and more adventurous, and I think that's really true, because you've had a lot of experience. I mean, in any other field, experience counts for a lot. You know, you want a doctor with experience or a lawyer with experience or a teacher with experience. Well, you want a sexual partner with experience, too, I think, and, and that women in midlife bring that to the table. Or to the bed. <laughs> yes. No, that's a very good point. But I think some, sometimes, um, you know, there's, there's an old school sensibility that, you know, men don't want women taller than they are, smarter than they are, women that make more money than they do, you know, that, that men really want to be a top dog in a lot of situations. And that with a younger woman, they can impress her with things. 
all, all kinds of things that uh, a more mature or worldly, worldly woman would not be impressed with and that, that she, in essence, might even see his, uh, his weaknesses? Well, yeah, he doesn't have this, his standards perhaps don't have to be as high because the, the younger woman doesn't have the same kinds of experiences. Although, you know, as you're describing, saying that, I'm thinking, you know, if you have an older woman, she may be more appreciative or more appreciative of some of the, of the things in a man that, you know, maybe she, her expectations, she's more tolerant, I guess is what I would say. And, yes. Yeah. So, and that can be a plus. But, okay, so let's relate it all to the book, though. Give us some, you know, just, we don't want to give away the book, though. You want people to go out and buy the novel, right? Right. So, but give us a taste of, you know, some of the issues we've been talking about, how they're played out in the novel with Sarah, the protagonist. Well, one of the things that that happens in the book that that, uh, she... uh, uh, experiences that a lot of people have uh, commented about is she goes on a in, in particular chapter of the book she goes on a blind date to uh, meet someone and it was actually a setup from a friend of the fam- a, a, a family friend and she goes to the sister's house of her blind date on a Sunday afternoon and she gets there and she finds out that her date died earlier that week, but that the family heard such good things about her that they all want to have lunch with her. That's hilarious. <laughs> so she spends her Sunday afternoon brunching in a beautiful location with her dead date's family, and she really likes them. So it, And then it creates a whole new other kind of sadness because of, of what might have been. And that, these kinds of things don't really happen when you're 20 years old. No, they don't. Those are the things that will happen, you're right, when you're middle-aged or a, a whole different kinds of experiences, you're right. And she had to be bolder and braver and more adventuresome, I guess, to be able to, to, to go there and to continue and, and to be there for the afternoon having, what, lunch with her dead potential dead yes, lovers. With the, yeah, with the family. With the family, exactly. That's very funny. Where do you get the... Like um, ideas for your for this particular novel. I mean, obviously, you said from your what you've done or your own life and your own your girlfriend's um, adventures. Do your girlfriends share a lot of with you because of your expertise in relationships and love and romance? Yes, they do, and uh, yeah, they 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 do. And also, uh, there was a there was a time in life when uh, I was actually having too many blind dates and there were people who thought that I actually did not, was not interested in being in a relationship, that I was just kind of going through this, uh, this uh, agony and these trials and these meetings to, to get writing material, which was, which was not the case. I mean, it happened to be a byproduct, but it was not, it was not what got me out there. Uh, date after date. Well, I have to ask you about that because I have at least two girlfriends that I can mention who talk about doing the same thing that you're describing. They keep going out and out and they have these blind dates or they have these dates online, but they really are looking for someone. And then I've no, they've been doing this for 
well, three or four years now. So my thought is, as a friend, well, maybe you don't really want to have a long-term relationship, and that's okay. You just want to go out with people once or twice or whatever it is, but this kind of commitment and intimacy is not for you, but that's okay too. But yet they don't, it seems to me, want to admit to that. Am yeah. I off base? Um, well, I think that that may be some people, or that, that pe- I, I think that the, the, the bigger problem is that in many cases people are not um, as emotionally available as they think they are, and they use, uh, they use dating um, as their way of not dealing with their problems. So I th- I think that I think that can be a an underlying issue. But overall I think that people have the best intentions. Now there is a whole other group of dating websites that is primarily or exclusively for um sexual hookups. You know, they don't want to have a long walk on the beach with you. They, you know, they, they don't want to go to dinner with you or find out your political opinions. They just want to, um, uh, as, uh, as a friend says, whip it out and shout. Yeah, and I can understand so that, that. that. That's a whole other thing, and to also have very clear ideas about what you want in that arena. Do you think it's more difficult, Arlene, as one gets older and when you're over 50, all these experiences that you had, you know, whether it's with intimate partners, gay or straight or whatever it is, or children or divorces, do you think sometimes when you're 50 and you meet somebody, do you, you have, they have all that stuff as well and you're not that interested? It takes a lot of time and a lot of energy to kind of get past some of that stuff or to understand it or have to become involved in someone's life that's so complicated because that comes into play too when you're older. You don't have right. all that when somebody's 20. Maybe you don't want that. Maybe you just want to, you know, have sex. You're a nice person and goodbye and, you know. Well, there's two things that come into play here. One, the, the buses stop less often. Uh, meaning that uh, as we get older, the pool really gets a lot thinner in, in terms of people who are available and accessible. And then there's the whole thing that as we age, we all have baggage, be it uh, uh, children, be it caring for aging parents, be it the emotional traumas of previous relationships, and that... Uh, other people have baggage as well, so it's a matter of our baggage matching their baggage. That's well said. So if the baggage, if the luggage matches, <laughs> then you're okay. Yeah. If you've got a set, it works out well. But if it doesn't, um, it can be a recipe. You get involved, I think it really can be a recipe for disaster. I mean, and, and, and so do you think more women of the baby boomer generation are staying away from Perhaps get, they don't necessarily need to get married or have a long-term partner and are more independent. Most of, uh, most of them have worked and uh, have a profession or jobs that they're interested in or want to spend a lot of time with their girlfriends who also are more interesting because they've done the same thing. That there are different options, different choices rather than having to hook up with a, a man or 
Yes, well, that actually is uh, where where the book takes the main character. It takes her to uh, see that the the company of women on uh, varying levels is in many ways more rewarding, or can be more rewarding. So, and in the book, I know you do that. How do you do that? Where does what happens in those kinds of relationships? What, describe the nature of the relationship, women well, to women. Um, yeah. One of the uh, one of the characters in the book is a married lesbian, uh, which I guess means means that she is uh, bisexual. She has a husband, and she has relationships with women, and her husband knows about her relationships with women and those relationships have certain boundaries. So this scenario helps her create a greater bond with her husband in many ways, but it also expands her her world and her horizons. And she takes the main character into that world to see what it's like and to see what relationships can be like with women and how they can become fuller and more developed so that you can have options. Uh, That's a very creative relationship between the character in the book and her husband. Um, And it's, I think, Probably it's something that one may see as a trend. I mean, more available as people, well, as people, I mean, you know, people are more open about their sexuality. Um, Mm -hmm. um, That those are, you talk about being bisexual. I think that's sort of like something that's probably will become more. Uh, just uh, th- that kind of relationship will will just we'll see more of it. it. You know, not just in novels, but in real life, especially with women over fifty uh, and and older older couples. Well, also within that world, I uh, met a group called Cool C O O L, which is the community of older lesbians. And it actually was women over 60, most of whom um, had been married and had children and grandchildren and their spouses were uh, deceased and they became uh, uh, closer with uh, their girlfriends and started uh, living together and just creating a... uh, a warmer, more intimate relationship. And that these women were very happy and and saw themselves as experiencing the full spectrum of life because they had had their marriages, had their children, and now they had someone to travel with, someone to live with, someone to have coffee with in the morning. And... These, some of these women were, were deliriously happy and quite, uh, quite exemplary. So the, the, it's called Cool, C-O-O-L. I actually yes. have a couple of friends. Uh, I know two relationships of, of two of, of friends, two lesbian friends, 
who are together who sound exactly as you're describing, who have been, have had their grandmothers, their mothers, they've got grandchildren, but now they're together doing exactly as you're, what you're talking about, traveling the world, enjoying each other's company, husbands yeah. are, go- yeah. And also, I think that as we get older, um, one of the things men don't like to talk about is that um, men have, after a certain age, men begin having sexual challenges. So even in a lot of the best relation, the uh, best male-female relationships, um, sexual activity changes, and it becomes uh, more about companionship rather than. Uh, uh, gymnastics, if you will, and uh, well, what that- about Arlene? Creativity in the bed. I think the American kind of attitude is we have to solve the problem. Yes, men do not like to talk about erectile dysfunction over the Thank age you. of forty-five or fifty. However, yeah. when you after six o'clock in the evening, you could you know erectile dysfunction. Do you suffer from it? You know, then we have medication that can help you. Without, and that's not really particularly a creative way of dealing with the aging process. Perhaps we need to talk about, and I think you're starting to touch on it if I stop talking, but it's like maybe there are more creative things one can do in bed. It does, And it doesn't have to be, I mean, you said companionship. That's the other end of, of, uh, of the spectrum. It could be a lot more in the middle in terms of how we relate to one another in an intimate way as one gets older. There are and, and instead of focusing on just erectile dysfunction or just having a companion to go out to dinner with. Right. Well, um, there's, you know, a lot of things relating to uh, um, as- aspects of touching and kissing and uh, hours and hours of, uh, of uh, a- affection and int- intimate uh, play that uh, people are experiencing and things, things become uh, um, in some ways uh, warmer and there's a lot more affection. and uh, Less I, challenging, I, less expectation, less pressure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yes. And um, I'm always surprised by as... As we get older, how much more, especially in their 50s, 60s, and 70s, how much men want to be hugged and held and how gratifying that is for them, more so than, say, when they were younger. We have to give them permission, I think, as a society. To do, to, it's okay to do that. Don't worry about erectile dysfunction. Don't, you know, let's talk about, as you say, you can be affectionate and it's okay to be affectionate and women like that. But I, there has to be kind of a change in, in a culture, a shift, I think, in attitude that, that you have that to, that's a good thing. That's a positive thing. That's an intimate thing. It's not, and, and I don't think we've, we're quite there yet, at least as a, a psychologically from a sociological perspective. Right. I, I think that uh, men feel concerned about performance and w- women are more inclined to think about closeness and that if a man is having challenges performing, that uh, it makes him less of a, uh, a sexual partner. But I, th- I think that as we get older, there's more of a, uh, 
a tenderness. I agree, and it, I think it's there. And I think that if, if you know, if we interview ten couples that that, that that over fifty or over sixty or over seventy, that that's what they would be experiencing. But I think that that it really has people have to become aware i guess you know it ha- that that that's okay and that's i don't like to use the word normal but that's just part of sort of the evolution of our sexuality and um and there's just a lot more there can be a lot more rewards to that kind of relationship um than trying as you say particularly with men i still have to perform like i performed when i was 20 you're not going to right. and so why try, you know, why try, you're not going to be able to run the same marathon that you ran when you were 20. Um, you know, you're not going to be able to do, but you do other things and you do them in different ways, right? You compete in yes. your own category if you're a swimmer. A 60-year-old doesn't compete with 30-year-olds. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> or they shouldn't. Your yes. book. No, I, I, I believe that. I think that, but, but also then that goes back to the fact that uh, we're not seeing, um, Older women in movies or on TV interacting. So, so, and I and I think that a lot of people get get their uh, get their guidance from movies and and uh, other things within our culture, like television and and to to some extent uh, magazines or or online presence. Well, to uh, end, Huffington and we have Post to end- has a whole section called Huff Post Fifty. All where right, all of these things are explored. I hate to, we have like about 30 seconds left. So one way of doing it besides HuffPost and movies is your book. So, yes. yeah. So I want to, the last place she'd look, which you can buy the book, bookstores everywhere, online, Arlene Schindler, go out and get the book. And you'll, you know, all these kinds of issues that we've been talking about, uh, you know, are you kind of hone in on the book. So it's really been great talking to you. Loved having this Thank conversation. You. Thank you, Arlene. Thank um, you. We're going to say goodbye. I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff, and management.